When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready? Hey guys, come on, bring it in. I've scrolled through my contacts, sent out the invites, and our guests are about to arrive. Welcome back to the podcast dedicated to the most precious human pastime. I'm Gregory Porter, and this is The Hang. This podcast is beautifully simple. I sit down with friends, idols, and inspirations of mine to discover what makes them tick. The only thing I've really ever tried to do in making music is to make myself feel the way I feel when I listen to other people's music. What I love about Moby is how he finds beautiful, lost, and forgotten musical gems, amazing blues, things that feel like they've been recorded a hundred years ago, and breathes new life into them, and how that's been an exemplar to his own personal change. As a white guy from, you know, granted I grew up poor white trash, but still, like a white guy from Connecticut <laughs> making records with these beautiful old black vocals, the only goal is to make beauty. And that's why I'm delighted to have him with us now. Way up in that middle of the sky, oh Lord. It's funny, hearing you sing, you know, I have to say, have you ever considered pursuing a career as a singer? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it. And here we are. Let me get you big so I can see you. Your head. <laughs> my little my, my little bald head, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I, I understand if you if you don't want to actually look at me, that's fine too. <laughs> First of all, let me say what a what an absolute pleasure it is to have a conversation with you to talk about um music and what music is and uh life and uh even this beautiful architecture that I see going on behind, behind you. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Regarding the beautiful architecture behind me, this shoulder is really strategic because behind this shoulder is a toilet. And so I didn't want to sort of like have one of those embarrassing social media moments. I mean, granted, to be clear, the toilet is clean, but like, it just becomes this meme of like, you know, I'm trying to have like a serious conversation and in the background, there's a toilet. So. <laughs> Very funny, man. A real pleasure. You know, when I was, when they told me that, uh, that we would have an opportunity to have a conversation, I was thinking, first thing that came to my head is because your music and your musical expression has been so varied. And so many different influences. I mean, even influences, this is going to sound strange, even influences I bet even you aren't aware of. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> yeah, because uh, there's so much going on. Are you trying to make people dance or 
do you feel like music has a greater meaning and a greater purpose? Well, that's that's a that's a great and gigantic question. <laughs> so, and you know, it's funny because, like, I mean, for the, how many thousands of years have people been trying to figure out music? I'm sure that, like, some version of this conversation was happening in ancient Greece four thousand years ago. And so I assume similar to you, similar to anyone who's watching or listening, like when you're growing up, you have that experience where you fall in love with music, you know, and you don't really question it. At least for me, you know, I I remember my first real emotional experience with music. I was three years old and my mom and I were living in this terrible apartment next to a prison in Danbury, Connecticut. And... (laughs) We had this rusty old car and we were in the car. It was the middle of winter. It was, you know, like typical, like New England, like, I don't know if it was February or March, but it was gray and cloudy and cold and terrible. And A Proud Mary by Creedence Clearwater Revival came on the AM radio. And I remember, it's one of my first memories, I refused to get out of the car until the song had ended. And from that moment on, I was just, utterly in love with and captivated by music. And I don't know if this was your experience as well, but then I started playing music when I was around nine years old and I had music teachers and people around me sort of trying to say how we were supposed to play music, how we were supposed to think about music. You know, my first music teacher, he loved uh, freeform jazz and very complicated Mm -hmm. music. So he tried to get me to only love complicated music. But I loved mm-hmm. I loved complicated music. I loved simple music. I loved electronic music. I loved acoustic music. I loved everything. And there's so many people who just have, a, they can't accept that. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I feel like I could just ramble on about this forever. I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but- No, no, no. But- No, no, please, yeah. But it's, I guess it's sort of like, on one hand, you have people who are trying to define music. And on the other hand, people who just love it. Yeah. Or busy at the, busy making it, you know. Yeah. Or and busy and, being it. And know? there's so you know what's interesting about, I guess it was 20 years ago, I started working with this organization called the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. And it had been it was started by um, neuroscientists, Dr. Oliver Sachs and this woman, Dr. Connie Tomeno started this organization to look at how music actually heals the brain, how it actually heals the body. Mm -hmm. You know, because for most of us, we talk about the healing power of music. What they wanted to do was prove it. And so they used MRI machines and fMRI machines and PET scans and all these like sophisticated diagnostics to show that music actually does heal us. You know, it promotes neurogenesis, you know, the growth of neurons in the brain, it decreases stress hormones. It's an actual healing force. So I think that's fascinating because it's not just entertainment, like it really does, it really can heal us. Yeah. Did you come to that understanding or ideal after thinking about it, studying it, after having a million people, millions of people listen to your music, Or did it come about before that? I suspect 
in reading about you and reading some of your words, maybe music for you was probably some pacifier or some healing force, even for you, even at three. Yeah, absolutely. I think at an early age, again, I don't want to ramble on too much, but like, I think that life is complicated for everyone, you know, and life is hard eventually for everyone. And when I was growing up, I grew up with a lot of confusion and trauma. You know, there was, I mean, a lot of it's just pretty standard, but like, you know, abuse, um, suicides, drug addiction. We were, you know, we were very, very poor. You know, I was on food stamps and welfare until I was 18. And so it's just like the external world when I was growing up was terrifying, you know, and the external world was threatening and the external world was confusing. And at an early age, I sort of gravitated towards two things that gave me comfort, which for me, that was animals and music, you know, like animals were safer than people and music was this comforting healing force. And so I've kind of, even though I'm 55 years old, like I've sort of dedicated my life to these two things, animals and music. Wonderful. Because um, very early on uh, in my life, music became this this comforter and pacifier, not from a, a really tragic or, or, or difficult life, but difficult in, in the sense that my father uh, didn't, didn't raise me. And I had, from a very early age, I had an understanding of that absence or that deficit in my life. I, I knew there was like something heavy missing. My mother said I used to sing myself to sleep, sing myself to sleep. She never had to put on any lullaby because I would hum or buzz until I just couldn't do it anymore. And I still feel that way about music. And in your music, this is, this is the thing, this is the influence you may or may not be aware of that I, that I, was, I was talking about, the things that you add into your music. In your music, you use African-American or gospel utterances from decades old. Now, it was recorded decades ago, but those utterances are much, much older. And this is where my connection to you came about. When I started to hear your music and I heard these sounds that I had grown up with, I had an immediate connection to those voices, and it took me back to a place in my childhood. My mother was a minister, and so we had our own storefront churches, but we also would go to other very small churches. And we went to this one preacher's church. His name was Elder Russell. He was a preacher in his early years, and he had gotten sick for like 40, 50 years. And then he he had started to preach again in his 70s and 80s. And so that's when we went to his church, when he was like 80-something. This was in the 80s. So he had the style of preaching from the 20s and the 30s. And the music that that we had in the church was not this new, flashy gospel music that sounds like the slickest R&B. It was that old school, 
Black American gospel blues that came out of Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, right here in Central California, Bakersfield, California. So when I heard Natural Blues or, you know, any one of those recordings that that draw from that almost like uh, that Lomax recording sound, mm-hmm. I was like, even though this music is very modern, it's a thousand years old. You do something in your recordings or with those recordings and you make them sound like they're way in the back of the room. And that's how I heard hmm. those old black singers way in the back of the room. And in, in, during testimony service, which is a time where each individual gets up and starts to, to either just tell a story about how God has been good to them. Many times those old saints would break out into song and it would be some song you never heard before, some song from the way south. Maybe nobody even knew the lyrics, but it was so repetitive that you could jump in. And so to give you an example, they, you know, they might get up and say, Well, Ezekiel saw that wheel way up in that middle of the sky, oh Lord. And that would be the point where the congregation will jump in. Oh Lord. Oh, Lord. And so I grew up in this. And I have to say, at the time, I wanted that slick, slick, slick gospel music Mm -hmm. that was modern and right now. And I didn't appreciate that country gospel blues that was a thousand years old. Later on, I would come to appreciate it and, and, to, and to put it into my own music. But hearing it mixed and embellished upon and appreciated in your music gave me even, even a greater appreciation for it. And in a way, it's like they still have a voice. They still have a voice. It's not just a soundbite. That's their soul. That's their spirit in the music. Well, it's funny. Maybe I said too much, but I said. It's funny hearing, <laughs> hearing you sing, you know, it, I have to say, have you ever considered pursuing a career as a singer? <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. <it's>, actually, <laughs> listen, actually, I didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't. Music came and got me. You know, I was in college and was, you know, I was promising my, my mother was sick and I was promising her. I was like, mama, everything's going to be okay. I'm just going to get this job for the government and, and live my life. And she said, baby, don't forget about your music. It's the best thing you do. And, and she remembered all those years singing in church and, and the feelings that, that the music gave other people and even the feelings that the music gave me. So she said, don't forget about that son. So I almost missed my calling in, in, yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, but you know what? Hearing you speak, it's interesting because obviously there is a huge cultural element that I'm always aware of, and it's incredibly uncomfortable, which is the fact that I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and a lot of my music has used, as you mentioned, these voices from old Black African-American traditions. And, and so I've had to spend a lot of time thinking about that. I've had to have a lot of conversations about that. Um, 
I've tried to give back quietly when I can. And I've even, of course, not surprisingly, and for good reason, been criticized for it. You know, I've read some criticisms of me for doing that, and I agree with them. I'm like, mm. but the only thing I can say, like, with God as my witness, in the core of my being is what I love about the voices and, and the musical tradition is the human emotion of it. Yeah. You know, that's what, like, the only thing that helps me to feel less guilty as, you know, as a white guy from, you know, granted, I grew up poor white trash, but still like a white guy from Connecticut <laughs> making records with these beautiful old black vocals is knowing that, you know, the, the only goal is to make beauty, you know, the only, and I hope that, you know, I hope I've done the right thing. I hope that I am able to do the right thing. I hope that if I veer away from doing the right thing, that people will compassionately correct me. But like, there's definitely the cultural context that I'm so aware of and the debt that comes with that, you know, and constantly trying to address that. Like, how do I best address the debt? Because, you know, as we were saying earlier, like, all people suffer throughout history. Lots of people have suffered, but of course, and forgive me for stating the obvious, there is no way for a white man in this culture to understand the modern and historical legacy and the suffering that black Americans have gone through, you know, and you can't even, it, it's, there's certain things that I've learned that I just don't, I'm, I'm almost like I sit back and listen, or I try to, you know, regarding like the suffering of women, regarding the suffering of black Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, you know, all like the disenfranchised, the persecuted, like, even if I've suffered, I can't say that my suffering has ever even been a one hundredth of the suffering of disenfranchised, marginalized people. So that's my awareness there. And then hopefully by creating, I mean, you know, it's interesting. And, and again, I, I'm saying this a little bit more just as sort of like an, as a cultural observer is, you know, like, like the Dr. King quote about like looking forward to a time when people will be judged solely by the content of their character. I think, I mean, you and I grew up in a similar time and I was raised by very progressive parents and teachers to believe that everything was okay. You know, that we were living in this post-racial, post-gender society. And, you know, and then Bill Clinton was elected and then Obama was elected. And, you know, we, you could almost believe for a second that we had <laughs> transcended the past. But obviously nothing Ooh. could be further from the truth. You know? <laughs> yes, but have some comfort. Listen. Critics can have their, their criticisms and, and people who are uh, unwilling to have an open mind about cultural legacy can have their criticisms. But for me, 
what you've done is amplified uh, the voice of another time. And I, I, if you pick out certain moments, musical moments for me as a black man, I am drawing on a music and a time before I existed. My music comes from somewhere, not created in a vacuum. Maybe a, a song that's been most successful for me is a song called Liquid Spirit. And it, it piggybacks off of these cultural, black cultural musical utterances that, that we're discussing. You know, oh, Lordy, you know, trouble so hard. This is, so piggybacking off of that, remembering the feeling of that and the, the spirituality of that, that kind of expression, that kind of singer. I write a song called Liquid Spirit, and I'm trying to achieve the same feeling that I remembered from my childhood. Unreroute the river, let the damn water be. There's some people down the way that's thirsty, let the liquid spirit free. I didn't grow up in the South, but this, this way of singing is something that is in my family and is in my church. Stylistically, it's the way we express ourselves, and it comes from that southern part of the United States. So though I was raised in, in California, when I go to sing, sometimes that's the South still comes through. And so you are in many ways just like me trying to connect to this soulful, rich river that is absolutely African-American, but American, American. So when I hear them, when I hear those saints, when I hear those black voices, when I hear those black utterances mixed in with the strings of the European tradition, mixed in with this, uh, you know, this uh, cacophony of techno and DJ uh, ideas, uh, orchestrations of America. I feel like it's, 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 it's us, it's that, it's them being weaved into the fabric of America. It's no small thing to take joy from a group of thousands and thousands of young white kids dancing with the sound of that in the background. It's a powerful thing. It, it eases and lessens and diminishes the walls that separate uh, color, race, age, socioeconomic. It's a thing that music can do, and it does it. It does it in a sneaky way in music. It's like, you know, it's just like if the groove is good, you don't care that it comes from Africa. You don't care that it comes from, you know, the history of the Black Southern Church. You don't care when it's put together and it just makes me feel good. You realize that it takes all of us to make something dope and soulful. So it's, I, I, oh, I'm, I, I've, I'm long-winded there, but. <laughs> it's interesting because you, you mentioned one thing in the middle about like your approach to music, which is something I have 
had to recognize about myself as well is the only thing I've really ever tried to do in making music is to make myself feel the way I feel when I listen to other people's music. You know, so like I'm not trying to reinvent, I'm not trying to invent a new wheel. I'm just simply thinking like, okay, my favorite records make me feel a certain way. If I'm a musician, my goal should be to make music that makes me feel the same way as my favorite records. Understanding I will never reach the majesty that these other records have reached. Like I, I realize I'll always fall short, but still being inspired by that. And then, yeah. you know, as musicians, as producers, part of our job is saying, okay, if I listen to like one of my favorite records, it's an obscure old gospel record by Reverend Lewis Overstreet. Hmm. It's so it's, I don't even know how I got this. I was just going through a record store one day and I found this record by Reverend Lewis Overstreet. And it's probably similar to like the church you were describing where it's like, there's a drummer, there's a guitar player, and there's a, there's the pastor. <laughs> and there's every song has one chord. That's it. Right, exactly. you know? And it's all, and it may be the same chord for the, all the songs. Yeah. yeah. And it's all double time that like, every song yeah. is almost identical, but there it's, it sounds like humanity. Like it just sounds so beautiful and powerful. And so part of when we listen to these old recordings or listen to new recordings and you have an emotional reaction, that question of, okay, what can I do? Not just as a songwriter, as a musician, but as a producer, as an engineer, as a mixer, what can I do to make music that achieves something similar? I, I think I think um, hearing your music just suggests that you have a huge record collection. But I think, you know, for myself, uh, as a jazz singer who draws from all of the, the different genres to express myself, I look to artists like uh, Nat King Cole, Marvin Gaye, Donny Hathaway. But I also, there's also, you know, just like this recording that you, you talked about, there's also a list of people that nobody has ever heard of. You know, in my mind is my own Lomax recordings that nobody was there to hear. There were great singers in my church, great gospel blues singers in these little churches that we went to. Nobody knows these people. They've, they've since long died. Nobody has ever, they never had large audiences, but they've put something in me that I feel like I'll carry on and I'll give to somebody else. This is my point about taking something that may sit in obscurity. It may be heard by some academics. It may be heard by, it may be heard by even a hundred thousand people, but taking something that sits there in a way is a spirit that yearns to be heard. So my point about your recordings is that putting those, I'll call them spirits, in your music and letting them be heard around the world gives them life. My mother said some things to me, even the lyrics to Liquid Spirit, the lyrics to many of my songs come from some things uh, or, or inspired by some things that my mother said to me. And I feel like the spirit of her goes into those songs. And then if it sells a million copies and then they tell friends and then they tell their friends, that's her living, living a bit longer. And, and, and her essence and her, uh, her beauty 
going just a little bit further. So I think um, any soulful, thoughtful person who would have some criticism of of your uh, use of of this Black American cultural legacy would would feel honored to have it broadcast around the world and to be thought of, considered, uh, danced to, listened to, and appreciated. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, that's, uh, I take a lot of comfort and reassurance in that. Thank you. Hey guys, you're listening to The Hang. Hit subscribe or follow on your podcast thingamajig of choice to get every episode of The Hang fresh off the presses. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, you, you, you've had, um, you know, an extraordinary life in your music. And in the explosion that your your music has had uh, over the years, um, are you a person that puts personal uh, experience, the highs and lows of your life uh, into the music? Well, yeah, I mean, and I don't know if this has been your experience as well, but like when I first started playing music, and taking it seriously it was when I was around 13 years old. All I wanted was to be involved in the world of music. And I didn't care what that meant, like whether that was going to concerts, working in a record store, listening to the radio, anything, playing in bands. And it just seemed like what a magical life if you could just spend your life surrounded by music. And then you end up with a career. <laughs> and which is which is what you want but it's also really confusing like and i i had a good maybe like 10 years of really un- well kind of unfortunately thinking too much about career you know like because when you're growing up it didn't even seem like it was possible to have a career as a musician then all of a sudden you have a degree yeah. of success and i started thinking like well how do i keep this success going <laughs> And, and that's when things start to go wrong. But luckily, and I'm very, very grateful for this, I've gotten to a place now where music to me is my refuge. You know, it's like, 
I work on music because I love music. And if someone hears it, great. If they don't hear it, that's okay too. The idea of just like seeking that, you know, going into the studio, working on a song and just for the, just purely for the love of that, you know, like, and it's because I'm sure this happens to you as well. We're like, I'll do an interview and someone will say like, oh, you've had such a career. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't have a career. You know, what I do is it's, I have a spiritual (laughs) vocation, you know, and there's a commercial aspect to it. And I have to remind myself the commercial aspect is the least important aspect, you know, which is obviously that comes from a place of privilege. You know, like I can pay the rent. I have a few sweatshirts. I'm okay. Like I can, I have the luxury of focusing on music from a more sort of like loving spiritual perspective, but it's, it's a great luxury to not have to, to think about the commerce of it, you know, Mm -hmm. and not everyone has that luxury, but I'm, I, I am grateful that I can just purely focus on music as a way of, I mean, there's, the awkward aspect in talking about it is the role of the divine, you know, cause you, you mentioned your mom who was a minister, but we live in, especially in the world of music, it's such a secular world. And yeah. the word God means so many different things to so many different people that we're in a way, that's the word we're never allowed to use, you know, at least in, you know, a lot of like contemporary culture. But to me, like, Music is like my one of my ways of trying to commune with God, you know, to try and you express your confusion, you express your longing, you express your comfort. But through it all, there is the pursuit of the divine, whatever the divine might be. Yeah, it's it's um, it's really something which goes back to in a way when you get comfortable, it kind of puts you back into that origin moment. It could be at any age, but for you, I think you said 13, where it's going to be part of you, whether it brings you success or it keeps you in poverty. This is going to be something in my life. Now, if we can get lucky and have some success and have some things run away but I think in, 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 in this beautiful way, you're at this, this point of not trying to impress with music, but speak with music and maybe open some people up with music. And that's the original reason for music. I have been in some situations where you have some, some success And because of that success, you have to keep hitting that note, the note of that success. But sometimes I just want to be a bit quieter. As a musician, there's a I have a whole lot of notes in me. And it's it's not always that high note. Sometimes it's that it's that whisper that is most satisfying to me. But if you sell a million records from that high note, that's what the people want to see. And that's what you got to do. That's what the record company wants. Make another high note, make another high note, make another high note. But I'm curious as to what this next chapter in music making will be, because there's been a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, separation, loneliness. What will it create? 
listen, we all want our music to, to, to get out there and go, but we also want it to say something. And I think that's the happiest thing, the proudest I am of, of my career thus far. Whatever it be, however small, the success that I've had has come with a bit of my mother's wisdom there, a bit of my ancestors' utterances, wailing and moaning. Uh, so that's important to me. And in a way, it goes back to, again, these African-American utterances that are sometimes in your music. There was a time in, in which uh, when the Africans were brought to America, they didn't have common language. They were, tribes were separated. And they were separated from their families. And they didn't have common language. And to express themselves musically and to get an emotional thought across, it happened in music. So when you hear, that's, that is not just notes. It's conversation. And so the idea that I can take some of that that I've learned in my experience and put that into my music that can sell a million copies, I'm very happy. I'm very happy. And in a way, you've done it in a, a similar thing. Um, you know, we've talked about it already, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to state that. Well, that's, yeah. You reminded me. I remember years and years ago, I was, I had released a record and I think I was having a conversation with one of my managers and maybe someone from the record label and they were talking about numbers. And I understand that's the world in which we live, you know, and they were talking about like X number of tickets sold and X number of, this is back in the days of CDs, X number of CDs sold and like X number of radio stations were coming on board it's sort of exciting. You know, it's a way of quantifying, you know, creating data that people can talk about and people can use. But there's this little voice in the back of my head who I've sort of learned to listen to, hope, or at least I try to pay attention to. The little voice in the back of my head said, don't forget, each one of those numbers is comprised of individuals. You know, there is no such thing as a, there's no such thing as a number of people. <laughs> what you have are a lot of individuals and especially with music. Like I sometimes have to remember, like when I was 15 years old, I played in a punk rock band called, called the Vatican Commandos. And we released a single. <laughs> Wait a <laughs> yeah. minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, we thought it was funny too. You can't, <laughs> you can't just throw that title out there just like, and then keep moving. <laughs> well, we were trying to think of titles that were sort of paradoxical. We came up with Vatican commandos, which we thought was pretty funny. Um, oh, that little grenade. Okay. <laughs> but our first single sold, I think, 100 copies. And I remember at that point being amazed that 100 people had taken their time and their money to buy music that I'd been a part of. And moving forward from then, then you start to get into the realm of like thousands and tens of thousands. And then the crazy world of millions and just remembering these are individuals, especially like you and I are not conventional pop artists. 
you know, like it's one thing for a pop artist to reach 10 million people who are at the gym exercising or something, you know, like, but the music you make, the music I try to make, I think that it's definitely different than regular pop music. And so when someone makes an effort to listen to it, they're looking for emotion and connection. And I just have to, I have to honor that because it's, it's very humbling. Like you think of all the billions of pieces of music in the world that one individual, especially one individual who's maybe going through something difficult would seek out your music or would seek out my music or hopefully seek out our music. And that is such a sacred thing that I can't be distracted by quantified data around that. You know, it's, it's a spiritual connection between the person who's made the music and that individual who's willing to listen to it. Your, how, do you, how do you classify your overall music output? If you had to put one thing on it, with dance, music, techno, what Do you know what's what funny? First, I, would, I wouldn't know how to classify it, you know, because I've written classical music, I've written dance music, I've written <laughs> punk rock, I've written hip hop, I've done so many different things. Do you know, because <laughs> someone asked me that question a while ago and said, if you had to categorize your music, what would it be? And the answer that came to me, and it's going to sound so strange, was folk music. You know, <laughs> and the reason I say that is... You know, whether it's folk music, whether that's, you know, Lead Belly or Lightning Hopkins or whether that's Pete mm-hmm. Seeger, whomever. When I think of folk, and obviously when I make music with drum machines and sampled voices and or orchestras and whatever, like there's nothing traditionally folky about that. But right. it's the simplicity of folk music and, and, and I'm including early blues in that as well. Like it's the direct communication is what I've always tried to achieve. I don't think I have always achieved it. I've gone far afield at sometimes, but I think of like the way Neil Young would sing a song, you know, that there's a directness to it. The way like um, blind Willie Johnson, you know, that song dark was the night cold is the ground. You know, there's Mm -hmm. a, there's just that, directness. So for lack of a better word, as weird as it might sound, I think of what I do as folk music. Yeah. And what's so, what's so cool is um, there's, there are points in songs that I write and, and songs that uh, really every, every artist, and there's songs on any, you know, Aretha or, or, or Marvin Gaye record that we can't wait to get to. And when you get to it, it's, uh, it's a satisfying thing. What you've, what you've been clever about in your use of sampling, in your use of even uh, spoken word, is you, you take and you synthesize, in a way, the best part of that, and you give it a chant or a mantra or a repetitive theme, a thing that happens in the blues, a thing that happens in gospel music. You reiterate. Uh, something that feels good until it's fully understand un- understood, and in a way that heightened moment repeated over and over again. What it does, it just it spirals upward, and it's a clever thing. It's something that I try to do in a live performance, but you you manage to do it 
uh, on wax. And it's, it's, a, it's a really, really interesting thing. Dance, would you, would you consider, would, I mean, dance? <laughs> I mean, you can dance to anything. You know, it's funny, you mentioned that, that idea, that idea of repetition. And one of the things that really inspired me was, so in the late 80s, I was DJing in New York City. And what was ironic about it was I was the only white kid DJing in this world. Like I was, I'd be playing reggae, I'd be, you know, dance hall, early hip hop, house music, some freestyle. And like, you know, so at these nightclubs, it was sort of a novelty. Like the crowd was all black, Latino, straight, gay, Asian. And then the one white kid over there in the corner playing records. (laughs) And, and I, it was such a, it was and I always felt so honored. Like, I was like, this is great. Like, they, like I've been welcomed into a world that is not by definition my world, you know? And it involved everything about it was, you know, the musical traditions, the cultural traditions, the sexual traditions, everything was, was different from what I'd grown up with. You know, I was yeah. raised by white hippies. Like, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I remember this one night I was driving home from New York, uh, like maybe 1989. Uh, I, and to, to go to the city with my records, I would borrow my mom's car. And I was driving home on I-95. It must have been five o'clock in the morning. No was it one, a station wagon? By It was a Chevy Chevette. <laughs> okay. It's like a, a, a red Chevette, but like the sun had turned the interior purple. So it was a, it was a <laughs> trust me, it was not like if I'd go on dates with that car, it was not very impressive. But so I'm driving home. It's five o'clock in the morning and the local public radio station was playing an Indian mantra Mm -hmm. and it must have gone on for 30 minutes and it didn't really change. And what I found so fascinating in that is I didn't get bored of it. You know, five minutes in, 10 minutes in, 15 minutes. And I was like, when is this going to change? It was just these, Mm -hmm. I guess it's, traditional Indian music that I'm, I, I'm very ignorant about, but it was really fascinating to have this repetition. And I started thinking like, wow, maybe music can be a lot more repetitive than I've given it credit for. And once, I mean, once you open yourself to that repetitive tradition, you realize it's everywhere, you know, like, I mean, there's, yeah. just, there's something so fascinating in like creating repetition and modifying it a little bit, but just letting letting people, letting the reaction to the repetition change rather than the music itself change. Music can take you a whole bunch of different places. For me, it was in my youth in, in small, small churches and then a bit of musical theater. And then I got to the jazz clubs in Brooklyn in Harlem, particularly in Bed-Stuy and in Harlem, New York. And from those experiences, I I developed my sound, coupling jazz with my gospel experience. And boom, I developed my sound. And I take that out into the world. I recorded on my first record a song called 1960 What? And it was remixed by... Uh, DJ Opalopo, and 
that took my song into some places. It took my voice into some places that it wouldn't have been and into some places where I had never been. So when I got the opportunity to start going to dance venues, whether it be house, uh, techno, as any, I, I realized how, yes, it's about the music, but there's such a, it's so layered, just like you said, it's so layered with all of these cultural things and these social things to where the music is absolutely, in a way, just a vessel or a conduit in which people can get together or get together and feel like one. So you go to these clubs that start playing music, and before you know it, everybody is moving and vibing to this rhythm. And I used to discount electronic music. I used to be like, well, you know, that it is, you know, it's because I didn't understand the social aspect of it. And, and, and I didn't realize that it was a conduit for people, not just for drugs, sex, alcohol, you know, that's part of it. That's part of everybody's, you know, existence in some way. But, but the aspect of coming together, communing over one thing and, and in a way, one rhythm. You know, it's funny because I, when I was very young, I studied music theory and classical music and I played jazz and then I played in punk rock bands. So similar to you, I also used to discount electronic music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I, you know, when I was really young, I thought like, oh, that's not real music. And then I started going to clubs in New York you know, this is back in the early 80s of like, you know, Danceteria, Fallout Shelter area and hearing electronic music. And I was like, oh, oh, I really, oh, I, I get it. Like, I see what it's, what it's, what it's doing. And it's, what it's doing is different from what classical music was doing. It's different from what a lot of jazz was doing, but it had this yeah. power to it. And so it's funny in a way people think of, me as being an electronic dance artist. And I'm like, no, my background is playing jazz guitar. <laughs> you know that here, let me grab a guitar. I got a guitar here. Go ahead, babe. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, I grew up playing like, So it's just, it's funny, you know, I was brought up to, to my, my first guitar teacher wanted me to be like in weather report yeah, or something. And I broke his heart when I discovered punk rock <laughs> and, and, or, you know, like even like just really simple blues, like. You know, and it's funny because like a lot of blues, unfortunately, 
there's a lot of white people blues that is just <laughs> very bad. You know, that like... Hey, you said it. I didn't say it. You said that. <laughs> and I remember in the 80s, like, I didn't even know that I really liked the blues because the blues was like white guys playing like... Like blues rock, which is like long guitar solos and like sweaty guys with long hair. And I was like, oh. <laughs> but then you discover, you know, I mean, some of, you know, the, the legends like, like, like Blind Willie Johnson is my favorite, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and you hear that power, that simplicity. And it makes me realize that, like, unfortunately, what a lot of white people did to the blues was just not not a good thing. Yeah, yeah. When you when you go back and 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 and, and hear, uh, you know, Sun House and and uh, uh, you know early John Lee Hooker, it's like, woo! It goes to that thing. John Lee Hooker seemed like he's playing with only three strings. Well, so- and it's and and out of tune, and it's the coldest, coldest three strings ever. You know that, um, you know, you know, it's funny because I remember being in a recording studio years ago and people were talking about hit records and I played this group of people Boogie Chillin' by John Lee Hooker. One chord with someone (laughs) talking, essentially talking over it and stomping their foot. It's a million selling. That was a that was a huge hit record. I I wonder how it the whole song. <laughs> that's, that's it. You know, yeah. or Smokestack Lightning or something like that. I was like, this is one chord and it's perfect. Like to add a chord change would screw up the song. And like just reminding yeah. people like music can be anything. Like it, you know, but John Lee yeah. Hooker, I mean like that voice. I mean, I remember the first time I heard his voice, I think it was in the Blues Brothers movie. Yeah. Yeah, that would be that. I think that would be the first time that I heard him properly. Yeah. You know, playing boom, boom. And I was like, I what the know, hell is that? I didn't know a human voice could be that deep, you know, that like. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, when I saw him and and I saw his eyes and I saw his hat and, uh, you know, I, the cat standing in the back and his gold teeth. And I said, I said, you know, I know. I know those people and I know that music, but culturally I didn't have a place to put it yet. You know, now we, we need, we need a, um, you damn near need a a doctorate to even find out who you are and where you come from. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, 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 I venture to say there's probably a lot of singers that don't even know the, the history and legacy of which they've come from. And so, before you step to the stage in a way, before you sing those lines and those runs, you have to know where it comes from and where it originated and who who these people were. Who was uh, a John Lee Hooker and who taught him? You know, um, so yeah, and and, and I, but I think I think we were moving around the point of of dance music and its validity. I think even I would say even here recent. You know, if somebody said something to me about like modern techno music, I, I I didn't know anything about it. 
And as I travel the world, you know, if I have a day off in uh, Mexico or a day off in Spain, uh, you know, Barcelona, or I have a day off in Berlin, some eye-opening things can happen if you go to a place where people are communing to music. Maybe it's a Monday night. There's no jazz clubs open. Or if I go to the jazz clubs, I'll be, you know, they'll damn near make me sing. Mm-hmm. On my one day off and on on my tour, so you know we'll go to I won't even name some club that I went to in Berlin, and then there's this, and I was just like, and then the, and then comes in these these tribal African drums, and then on top of that comes a you know with with it seems like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and then and then all of a sudden. There's a thousand people on the dance floor dancing. I'll just say it blew my mind. I was like, whoa, what is this? Now, this is music and a scene that can take you to excesses for sure. Because in that environment, everything exists. Sex, the drugs, the alcohol. The, but if you're just focusing on the music, whoo. It can be pretty powerful. <laughs> I, I I thought I had I had I had I had felt a lot of things in music, but the power of this this communal thing that happened with this electronic music it hadn't happened for me before. Yeah, I mean it's when it works, it's transcendent. What I call these these uh, African American souls that have been in your music. Thank you so much for talking about them, for expressing them all over the world, and and. And having this conversation with me. Thank you, man. Thank you for for all that you've done. And thank you for being on The Hang with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that is it. My thanks again to Moby. And thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Shall we do it again? Okay. See you on the next one. I'm Gregory Porter, and this has been The Hang, a Cup and Nuzzle production.